I'm Brittany Wilson. I'm Nia Wasink, and you're listening to The The Nonprofit Nonprofit Reframe. Because we know that nonprofits and their staff are undervalued, under-resourced, and unrelenting. Welcome back to The Nonprofit Reframe. Happy Monday, folks. We are recording this early for you on Monday, April 3rd. We are so excited to be covering another fabulous topic with you this week, but we also just got done recording an even more fabulous topic for our Patreon subscribers, which you should be. Head on over to patreon.com slash nonprofit reframe so you can join us in our book club. We are reading Insights, The Revolution Will Not Be Funded Beyond the Nonprofit Industrial Complex. If you're sitting there and you're saying, what? What the hell did she just say? Nonprofit industrial complex. What's that? That's exactly what I was saying when I started reading this book. And now I feel so much more aware. And you can too by reading this book. So check it out. There's still time to join us. Or at the very least, you can become a Patreon subscriber. And then you'll get access to the recordings that we've done of all the chapters so far. We would love to have you. I have a quick follow-up from our last episode, if I may. Ooh, please, please. This actually came from a colleague this morning. Such a funny story. So this person used to live in Longmont. She was also a nonprofit consultant and moved to my hometown last year. At her going away party, I kept being like, why are you going there? Like, what are you doing? Why? What's happening? (laughs) And it's been so interesting, like, keeping up with her as she's learning, like, what it's like to live in Holland, Michigan. And I saw her for coffee when I was there over Christmas. And we, like, just processed being a liberal in a very red community. But she sent me this job posting this morning for a pregnancy resource center. Are you familiar with pregnancy resource centers? I'm going to assume the only resource is that they tell them to keep the baby. Great guess. (laughs) Actually, interestingly enough, the Colorado legislature just passed a bill. It'll be going to the governor this week for signature to reduce some of the, I don't know, kind of confusing at best, deceptive at worst advertising they do, where they say, like, you know, we're going to give you options. And it's like, no, your option is keep it or give it up for adoption. So anyway, my friend sent me this job posting from Holland for a pregnancy resource center. And there were some interesting requirements in the posting. Number one, you have to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, son of God. Whoa. All right. Number two. Putting it out there. Sexual purity. Stop. (laughs) Is this a real thing? This is a real fucking thing. Sexual purity? Purity. Mm Mm-hmm. How do they define that? I'm quite sure it means a sexual relationship is only permissible in a marriage between a man and a woman. What if you've had multiple marriages? Ooh, I mean, they're not Catholic, so that's okay, I think. Okay. So you can have multiple partners, but only if you've had multiple marriages. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then this is probably my favorite part. Key responsibilities. There's only one. One key responsibility for this job. You ready? Yes. Make prayer an integral part of the day-to-day operation of the center. Wait, what's the name of the position again? It's a center director. (laughs) Their key responsibility is to make prayer integral. 
fuck the healthcare, fuck the people coming in. Let's pray. <laughs> this is a real job. This is a real job at a nonprofit in my hometown. Does it list the salary? Of course not. Please. If you're pious, it doesn't matter what you get paid, but you will tithe 10% of that back. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so outside my world. Like I can't even, I cannot believe that there's a job that on the public job description, it lists sexual purity as a required qualification. Yep. That's so fucked up. Oh, I also forgot an important qualification. Be in consistent fellowship at a local church. Well, yeah, you would hope. I mean, if they're doing all the other things, then you would think that they're probably a member, a pretty devout member someplace. Hope everybody enjoyed that follow-up on our Religious Human <laughs> Services episode. On to today's main topic. Yes. So today, Nia, we are going to be talking to you about a guide that you recently, your agency recently created for DAFs. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about what's it called? Let's talk about DAFs. <laughs> Love it. Love it. But that's not all it's called. Subtitled, A Guide for Disruptive Fundraisers. That's my favorite part. <laughs> disruptive, disruptive fundraisers. How do you define a disruptive fundraiser? I think it's a fundraiser who is done with the status quo, is done with the white supremacy culture in fundraising, is done with donor centrism, is done with a philanthropic sector that fundamentally doesn't address our community's needs. Love it. Why did you pick DAFs in particular to focus on? Because they fucking suck. <laughs> I guess we should probably back up. I mean, I would think that people would maybe know what a DAF is, but in case they don't, we should back up and describe that. Yeah. Do a little explanation. We also have a whole episode on DAFs, which you are welcome to go back and listen to. I'm quite sure it is not outdated because they're still around and they're still fucking shitty. DAFs, Donor Advised Funds. I think of DAFs as like the baby step or half step between just direct giving to a nonprofit and setting up a private family foundation. So both financially, you usually can start a DAF for much less, like 25000 versus 100 k but also because of how they're managed. Instead of having like foundation staff and all of those systems specific to the foundation, DAFs are actually housed elsewhere. They could be housed either at a community foundation or a commercial DAF group like Fidelity Charitable is one of the most common ones. Vanguard, Schwab, they all have some sort of private DAF program. And so why would a donor want to use a DAF? Great question. Number of reasons, but the two primary ones. First off, DAFs give anonymity. Because DAFs are housed elsewhere, they don't have their own tax returns. There's nothing about money coming in or going out of them that is actually accessible to the public. <laughs> mm. They can be named whatever, like the Billy Goat Fund. So for donors who don't want to be solicited by a bunch of nonprofits, that anonymity is really helpful. The other reason that folks often set up 
updafts are tax purposes. They want to offset one specific moment or period of time where they have significant income that's going to increase their tax liability. Let's say they sold a company, they just had a really great year, whatever. They can park their funds in a DAF, take the tax deduction in that tax year, and then they have time to distribute the funds from there. And those funds are earmarked specifically for what? 501c3s. Beyond that, there's not really anything. Oh, so they can really give to any 501c3. And so not only is there anonymity for the donor, like you said, you can call it the Billy Goat Fund. They have no idea that it's really Brittany Wilson's fund. But then there's anonymity of where those funds are distributed to. Is that correct? Exactly. Yeah. So you could give to any place as long as it's a 501c3. Yes. Now, some organizations, especially community foundations, will have additional requirements like no hate groups or potentially even like geographic ranges that they require giving to be in. But at a minimum, funds out of DAFs have to go to 501c3s. And whoever is housing that DAF, whether it is a commercial DAF or a community foundation, will have to vet and ensure that it's a 501c3 before the funds get distributed. That's assuming funds are actually distributed. Right. Dun, dun, dun. So like that's kind of the crux of the whole thing. DAFs allow for like a certain level of dark money. We don't know where it's coming and going. But it also doesn't have any requirement about going. Foundations have a requirement of a 5% annual spend. As we've discussed, that's a spend, not a payout, because the spend can be used to cover certain expenses as well. A lot of push to increase that. DAFs have no annual requirement, period. DAFs can live in perpetuity. DAFs can be passed on to the next generation, So they're really problematic. Again, here's my socialist coming out again. Those donors take the tax deduction in the year that they make the donations into the DAF. That means that the government gets less revenue, theoretically, in that year because of that large tax deduction. That means the government can provide fewer services, can support fewer grants, can provide less welfare, whatever the, you know, the outgoing needs of our taxes are for governments, they are able to do less of it. And there is no requirement that the donor ever distribute those funds in a way that will alleviate that issue that they have caused. And why is it beneficial? Like, why are the the people that are holding these funds, let's say like the private companies, like the Schwab's, the Fidelities, are they pushing these fund holders to distribute? Great question, Brittany. As you might have guessed, the answer is no. Because I read your guide. Yes. I read the answer. Again, two reasons here. One, especially the commercial ones, they make fees, right? Like they, they make money off of these. Number two, they add to the assets of these organizations. If you go into an audit for, say, your community foundation, you're going to see a number for assets under management. The bigger that number is, the better cachet they have the more they can really court larger donors because it shows that they can like really manage these large amounts of funds. So they are disincentivized from having DAF holders actually distribute funding, which is really one of the biggest issues here. And we know when Congress has attempted to regulate distributions of DAFs, one of the first groups 
to lobby up and push back are our foundations. They do not want that to happen. Yep. But it's just like a little amount of money. So who really cares, right? I mean, just, you know, some billions. (laughs) Money put into DAFs has increased so significantly in the last five years. And we are not obviously seeing the distribution at the same rate. Like it has become the vehicle of the time. If we are truly entering our next Gilded Age, the byline on that Gilded Age for nonprofits is going to be made by DAFs. So billions and billions of dollars that have been earmarked and can only be used as distributions to 501c3s are just sitting in these accounts making money for these banks that are housing them, these financial institutions that are housing them. Mm-hmm. And could be actually helping, right? Could be funding different nonprofits and initiatives, but instead they sit there. And there's no motivation for the people that have them to distribute them because, of course, like we said, they're making money off of them. And this is something when I read it in your guide, and we're going to talk more about the guide itself in a second. I knew intellectually, but I I guess I just like didn't really think about it this way. But technically, when you put money into a DAF, then it's no longer belongs to the donor. Right. So when you talked about their assets they're managing, it really does become the financial institution's asset. Yeah. So these institutions can say no. If a DAF holder says, I want to give X dollars to this organization, these institutions can absolutely say no. Like it is now their money. Obviously, it's a bit more complex than that, <laughs> right? Like there there are ways that it gets passed on after death. And, you know, it's not like the foundations could go out and just start spending funds, but it's not no longer the donor's property. That's so fucked up. So one of the examples that you give in the guide is about Elon Musk and how he put billions into a DAF. So let's say he wakes up one day and he is just filled with like so much like gratitude and generosity. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to empty out this DAF and I'm going to distribute $5 billion in one day or one week, which allegedly he could do, right? But those institutions are like, fuck, no, we're like making money off of that $5 billion. So they could actually turn around and say, "Uh uh-uh. Yes. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of laws that govern it. It's not that cut and dried. But they have recourse, especially if it's to a specific type of organization. I do want to say, we do not know for sure that Elon has set up a DAF. This is part of the like lack of transparency. He made a $5.7 billion gift in 2021. No organizations have come forth to say that they received funds. So the assumption is that a DAF was created. We would know if a foundation had been created, right? Like all of that is public. So we are quite sure it is in a DAF, but we don't know because we don't have to know because there's no public transparency. DAFs are one of the least democratic ways that we can distribute funds. So that brings us back to your guide. And so you created this guide for who? Yeah. So our hope at Prismatic, my consulting firm, is to really have this be an opportunity for fundraisers to have some important conversations. I mean, you and I, Brittany, have been railing against DAFs 
We supported the ACE Act, which was Congress's attempt at regulating them, even creating a type of DAF that would require a spend down. And it stalled. Come to find out that kind of legislation has stalled out multiple times. So like, I'm just not seeing Congress as like an ally in this work. So then um, my colleague, Megan, who really wrote this, I, I just helped her edit it and compile it. It was like, what what can we do? If we can't find legislative action, how do we change some of this? And so we thought, well, it comes back to fundraisers. Fundraisers hold this really unique position of power. They can have conversations with donors. They can also have conversations with foundations. Let's empower them. Let's give them the tools so that they can start making changes, even if it's just individual by individual. At least it's fucking something. Yeah. Well, what I love about it is that, you know, you and I talk on this podcast all the time about what you just said, like the, the power that we hold as fundraisers in being able to educate donors about these types of things, right? And we get it. It's not easy. But our job as a fundraiser is building relationships. And hopefully with that relationship comes a sense of trust, a sense of honesty and transparency. And so how can we work into our conversations with donors about these problematic ways of giving? And how can we educate them on, I'm sure, a lot of this information that you just talked about that they have no idea about, right? Oh, exactly. Yeah. And maybe don't know that they're contributing to that, right? Or maybe it would help them, even if they have a DAF, it, maybe it would help them reconsider what they're using it for, how they're using it. You know, Because I do, I hear a lot of donors say like, oh, well, I'm going to keep that for my kids or my grandchildren to distribute. And you're kind of like, well, what if they don't? What if they never do? And like what problems are happening in 20, 30, 40 years versus today that that money is worth more then than it is now to help out, you know, whatever that might be. And so your guide really gives a step-by-step information for fundraisers of how to have those conversations. And I think it's so helpful. Yeah. I mean, just like our conversations that we've had about DAFs, the issue isn't usually the, t- the like individual donor who sets one up. Elon Musk obviously is on an island by himself. We can critique him all day long. But most donors, they're wanting to do good. And DAFs, you know, the people who are promoting them are promoting them for a lot of reasons. You've got wealth advisors who are helping them just figure out where to put funds where they can distribute them well. You've got tax advisors saying, hey, we need to offset this capital gains that you're going to have this year. You've got foundations saying, hey, park your money with us because not only will we help you distribute it, but the fees we make support our community, right? So there are a lot of like really well-intentioned actors in all of this. It is a system that's at issue. And so hopefully this is just a way for fundraisers to help folks understand that and then to help them give more effectively out of their DAFs. Like we've got a, a few different audiences that we identify in the guide, one with fund holders, like how do you sit down and have that conversation with foundations, How do you talk to them about their transparency around getting in front of DAFs? How do you have conversations with them about DAFs in general and demystifying it? Brittany, how often have you had conversations with clients where they're like, how do we even get DAF funds? What does that look like? Yeah, absolutely. All the time. Yeah. The average fundraiser, especially newer ones, 
it's just like you get this random check from a DAF and you're like, that's cool. I'd like more of that, please. (laughs) (laughs) So like, let's shift that. Let's actually have these conversations. Let's have foundations help educate. Let's also put some pressure on them, right? Like during the pandemic, especially in the early days, there were calls on foundations to push their fund holders to distribute. And some did. I mean, I, I saw foundations sending out mass blasts, but targeting specific donors and saying, hey, you haven't used your DAF yet this year. You need to do it now. Our community needs your help. Like, yeah, right. let, let's encourage foundations to do more of that. Let's celebrate the ones that do, right? Let's recognize that we work in a really inequitable system. And some folks are trying to change it in their small little ways. And we can be part of helping that. Absolutely. And what I love, I mean, it's just so such useful information. I mean, you even spell out conversation starters for each of these different segments. So it gives a very practical way for fundraisers to broach these subjects and questions to start asking to get the conversation going. Yeah. Like, again, I always think that like knowledge is power. Little shooting star over the podcast. But the hope with this guide is first off, like, let's educate people, understand the the history of philanthropy in the U.S., that context within which DAFs were created. Then let's educate on, like, what we can do. How can each of us take one step to help address this system that was not meant to actually elicit social change? So how can fundraisers get a hold of your guide? What, how are you distributing it? Well, first and foremost, it'll be in the show notes here. Secondly, you can head on over to teamprismatic.com, teamprismatic, all one, dot com, and you can download your own copy. Luckily, it's it's a short little thing. It shouldn't take you much time. You can read it with your morning coffee, but it also has a bunch of additional resources, blogs, podcasts, books. So um, hopefully something for everybody in there. Well, thank you so much for compiling all this information and putting it together so fundraisers, they can have it all in one place and learn enough to be able to talk about it with other people. I think this is great. Thanks, folks. And uh, thanks to all of you wonderful listeners who are going to go download it. I just want to say this project has been a true labor of love between my colleague Megan and I, where we were really saying, like, what role can we play as consultants to it? both leverage our power, right? We recognize we have this kind of unique role. So how do we leverage that and also start to address these systems in different ways? I can sit on this podcast and bitch and moan about a lot of shit. And sometimes we give health advice, but like, how can I do that more significantly in my everyday work? And so this is really our our first product towards that. So hopefully also more to come. Make sure you also sign up for our newsletter at teamprismatic.com and we'll keep you abreast of whatever else comes next. So go download it right now. Don't delay. Read it. Have some conversations and then let us know how it went. Yeah. Can't wait to hear. You can email us nonprofitreframe at gmail.com. Make sure you're following us on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks. Bye. Don't forget to become a Patreon subscriber for behind the scenes content starting at only $3 a month. Learn more at patreon.com slash nonprofit reframe. We would like to thank our sponsors. Brittany Wilson Consulting helps nonprofits raise even more money through fundraising coaching, training, and event production. Learn more at brittanywilson.com. That's B-R-I-T-T-N-Y Wilson.com. 
Mission Launch is a Colorado-based consulting firm working towards social good in all sectors through fundraising, board governance, strategy, and planning, and equity support. You can learn more at missionlaunchco.com. And Jake Walker Music, who provides our theme music. You can find him at jakewalkermusic.org. Thanks for listening.